don't you resent the frogs the frogs are really frustrating i'm not talking to the uh to the audience i'm talking to you kyle well i mean first of all misfire on the start tonight we i was i i was we usually start at a particular time and i got a late start on dinner and so i wasn't ready when you were and so by the time i got on you weren't here but you left your mic open and so i just heard the frogs for maybe like 10 minutes or something and so i started a stream of consciousness messaging you and then i realized i could be spending my time better and i went and fished out a box of uh savannah smiles which are suburban i don't know i don't want to use a drug reference because now there's a lot of suburban drugs <laughs> right just they're delicious they're they're they are they are why the girl scout cookies exist did you know that Girl Scout cookies have different names in different parts of the country? Like the same cookie? I did not know that. Uh-huh. I wonder if Savannah Smiles in the South are like New England dreams or something. <laughs> I don't think that's how the South works. <laughs> they're like, oh, we want one of those pretentious cookies. Yeah, yeah no, they, they, they're not going to name anything north of, the, north of Dixie. Uh, yeah, so I learned this because, so my wife grew up in Michigan and I grew up in New York and, um, the, well, so what do you call the, the cookies with the peanut or the chocolate on the outside and the peanut butter on the inside with like a cookie on the bottom of the peanut butter? Um, they're called tagalongs, right? They are, uh, this part of the country, although in the Midwest, they are called peanut butter sandwiches, <laughs> which I think is so exactly perfect. That is so good. It, it's, it's like, you, made, you made my entire week with that, I think. <laughs> it's like everything you need to know about uh, In Between the Coasts in one sentence. <laughs> oh, man. That I, is I, like, so good. I may even have like one of the words wrong, but it's basically like it, it, it you know, how <laughs> Kleenex is like. of what it is. Yeah, it's like Kleenex is like hey, Kleenex. Hey, Sean, can you go to the store and buy some nose tissue, please? <laughs> exactly. Kleenex brand facial tissue, except that the Midwest didn't get the memo that you're supposed to put something in front of the facial tissue to make it your own. They just they just said, here's some facial tissue. Yep. Oh, that's good. No, yeah, I, I didn't. did not know that. Yeah, I was all smug one day with Teresa because she's like, oh, I ordered some peanut butter sandwiches, Girl Scout cookies. And I'm like, they are Samoa's. Uh, you know, we need to refer to them by their proper name. Yeah, and she's like, "That their, is their Christian name." <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's like, "That is the name." I'm like, oh man, where did you grow up? Yeah, I'm sorry, but this won't work out. <laughs> so we were talking about this very briefly before we started to record. But what's your strategy slash policy on purchasing Girl Scout cookies? Okay, so uh, generally speaking, there's two types of Girl Scout cookie purchases. Okay. Um, there's the kind, uh, maybe there's three. I'll the kind you regret three. now and the kind you regret later. <laughs> there's three. <laughs> the, the first one is, uh, adult social obligation. So like, Hey, my daughter's selling Girl Scout cookies and I always say yes, but I'll maybe only buy like two boxes or whatever, you know? <laughs> and then, and then there's the, I'm coming to your house, but you don't know me. And my mommy told me to say, do you want Girl Scout cookies? Right. And, and uh, unfortunately, this has happened to me twice this year. And I said yes. And I'm pretty sure I like frightened everyone by answering in the affirmative. Uh, so I bought oh, some really? Girl Scout cookies from them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
so here's a funny story that's going to make me sound like a really horrible human being. Uh, so we're driving out of our neighborhood, and we only moved here a little over a year ago. So, I mean, we don't really know all the neighbors. We know most of the neighbors, but we don't know everyone. And I sat or I sat in my car, and me and Jamie and Cooper were going for a ride, and we pull out of the driveway, and I see a girl with presumably her mother. And I'm like oh my god is that a girl scout and we're driving by them they're going to another house and i stop the car because in my head i thought oh i can get out of this car right now and go buy girl scout cookies while this little girl and her mother are at some other person's house that is not really near my house but is in my neighborhood and jamie's like you can't do that like they're gonna think you're uh trying to abduct this little girl and i'm like the thought just never crossed my mind. I was just so ravenous for my Savannah smiles that I thought I'd just be like, hi, little girl. I would like to purchase 10 boxes of your delicious Savannah smiles. <laughs> now, now, of all things that do not satisfy sort of impulse purchase desires are Girl Scout cookies. They arrive so far after when you had the impulse. You're not even sure, you know, if you bought them. Well, see, that's the best part about Girl Scout cookies because these Girl Scouts aren't dumb, right? They go and they come to your house and they sell you and then they ask their mom and dad to hit you up at work, right? Because they have to win, you know, their Beanie Baby or whatever the hell kids win these days. And then what they do is they get the delivery of the Girl Scouts, right? The, The troop gets the delivery. And then they're like, you know what we should do? Before we deliver the boxes that have already been purchased, we should set up little stands at the grocery store, at the bank, at wherever. And so we're walking out of the grocery store, and there's these other girls that are selling Girl Scout cookies. And logically, my wife and I know we're like, we've purchased Girl Scout cookies like from three separate people. We know they're coming we don't have them now (laughs) right these little girls have boxes of cookies like that they can physically hand to me and so inevitably i go up and i'm like all right here's you know here's like twenty dollars because that's divisible by four and just (laughs) give me my cookies please (laughs) so my 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 rule is very simple i've got a, a policy i've lived by for years about girl scout cookies and it is the following if it's a group of girl scouts i will not buy cookies from them I've never once bought Girl Scouts from a group. So, like, in front of the grocery store, not buying. Uh, CVS, not buying. Little League, not buying. If it's a Girl Scout that comes to my house, uh, it doesn't matter if I don't know her, do know her, I am buying. 100% of the time, if it's an individual Girl Scout. I've never said no. Um, And if it's the parent, I'm saying no 100% of the time. But I tell them that if their Girl Scout asks me, I'll buy from the Girl Scout. That's my rule. You can, you can you can steal as you as you like man i don't think i have strong enough opinions to do that i think it's pretty i hated girl scout cookies until they introduced savannah smiles and now i'm just like like i think i like girl scout cookies more than my wife who's a sweets person and i don't really like sweets but i love those freaking cookies how do you describe a savannah smile it is a um shortbread cookie with a little bit of lemon like zest in the cookie and then it's covered in this like lemony powdered sugar type thing, like dusted with it. <laughs> and they're about the size of a uh, mandarin orange wedge. <laughs> Was that good? A plus on the <laughs> A plus on the description, I gotta say. Uh, but the cookies themselves sound 
um, uninspired to me. Oh no, they're they're not inspired at all. But then again, I mean that's like the whole point of Girl Scout cookies, right? Because like think about it, the Girl Scouts are like you know what people want, they want cookies, and so we're going to go to these manufacturers and come up with like relatively you know uh, blase cookies and then sell them. And so they do that, and the, and it's delicious. I love it. I mean, I love. I, I literally am sitting at a box, or sitting next to a box right here. <laughs> I, not for not for long. No, not no. If you're crunching, you'll know why. <laughs> and, and now, then, in the Midwest, what would they call Savannah Smiles? Uh, dusted lemon cookie. <laughs> All lowercase, no <laughs> trademark. Ha- hashtag. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I've been wishing that I had Girl Scout cookies all night because uh, we had a phenomenal dinner tonight. I loved it. And then I like sweets and got to the end and I had nothing. I just had my favorite cocktail, uh, which is a Moscow Mule. Oh, wow. Uh, do you have like the copper cup and everything? I do. And I was thinking about that topic earlier today. That I, Do you think the copper cup has done a service or disservice to the Moscow Mule? And, and here's why I was thinking about it. Imagine if... To drink a margarita there was like a required cup like you can only drink a margarita out of a clay pot like people would not drink as many margaritas i don't know they wouldn't but, and my life would be significantly worse <laughs> exactly i mean like it would it would add a little bit more personality to the margarita because like it's the thing you drink out of the clay pot but like people would say <laughs> geez i don't have a clay pot so i can't drink a margarita and i think that people think that with a moscow mule because if you look online at recipes like a hundred percent will say and you drink it in a copper cup and i'm like why and it really has nothing to do with the drink uh, but yet you know what i drank it in tonight a freaking copper cup because marketing and uh i'm convinced that if they could do it all over again they would undo the copper cup part of it because i think it's their clay pot it's like a you know blessing and a curse man i i don't think i've ever had a moscow mule at home yeah it's 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 the copper cup thing i'm telling you because you don't have a copper I think cup it right? is yeah, no, I do not own a copper cup. I own some sort of stainless steel cup, but I just I can't bring myself to put <laughs> anything in it. So I uh, I ordered from Amazon a case of uh, Moscow Mule mixer. Which is- I was hoping you were going to say copper cups, <laughs> like that would be your thing. You'd be like, hey, hey, Kyle, you ever you ever had a Moscow Mule? No, no, Sean, I wish I could, but I just don't. Here you go, buddy. And the bottom well, it says divine or something. I, that's something I would do, and I, I'm thinking about it. So I, I like this one drink mixer that I that I found quite a bit for Moscow Mules. It's a ginger beer called, from a, a company called Fever Tree. And uh, so the other day I'm like, hey, Amazon sells everything. I wonder if they sell my favorite drink mixer because you know you only get it in like the small containers from the local liquor store, and then you know before you know it, somehow it's gone. And so on an Amazon, turns out you could get a case of like eight large bottles. Oh, for, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've converted to mostly Moscow Mules as my as my cocktail of choice. And so is this like a particularly good ginger beer? I think it's really good. Uh, Frequently bought together G- Fever Tree Premium Ginger Beer, hammered copper Moscow Mule mug, handmade <laughs> of 100% pure copper. I'm telling you. Oh my god, they're so expensive too, though. The copper mugs? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're not that expensive. They, it's twenty four dollars. It seems expensive. I think that's a lot for a mug. I mean, like, my- what else can you? Now I want to Google like 
What else can you put in a copper mug? Well, I think yeah, here's a secret. This you can put oh, anything in any mug. Oh, you got a clean them special too. Okay. Well, it's funny you say that. That's we have not figured out the recipe for cleaning, and I've convinced Teresa, or I don't think I've convinced her, but I've attempted to convince her that when you have a copper mug, like it, it's supposed to look a little worn. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was causing a lot of stress that it was looking worn. And I'm like, what can I do? Like the alternatives are like, get the tarnish remover. Sounded like a not great option. Or say that copper cups with tarnish is full of character. And then that's actually the preferred Russian way to drink the Moscow Mule. And I don't think she bought it, but she's going with it too. Um, How uh, How about this great question? To avoid copper toxicity, are these coated or lined internally? Christ. It's all over, Sean. You're going down, buddy. So my last uh, drinking-related comment is I uh, so I kind of like mugs, you know, so I, I like my copper mugs. I like... I don't really care about wine glasses so much, but I really like tiki glasses. <laughs> and I, uh, I had a moment, like, I don't know. Well, for a lot of years, I've liked tiki glasses, so that's not new. But recently, maybe this winter, like... Uh, December or so, it occurred to me that I could just buy a bunch of tiki glasses for my house and then drink my morning grapefruit juice, which is what I have with my coffee, in a tiki glass every day. <laughs> and I do that. And it is, uh, mm-hmm. it's sort of like when I realized I could stock my house with pickles. It was, uh, it, it took me like 35 years to come to that realization, but man, the next few were really solid. Yeah, this is the best episode of the show that we have ever done, and we are like three minutes into it. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. So well, uh, oh, you know, we, we didn't even do our yeah, usual I know, intro. I know. You're listening to this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Sean, and that's Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> there oh, we go. Oh, boy. So good. Okay, so we've got a pretty good uh, programming topic for later. I say we mix in some of our smaller programming topics before that uh, with our, you know, the rest of our baloney had to tell someone topics. Yeah. Um, But let's tease the topic. So our big topic for today is how do you know when to ship a feature? Um, Which is not an obvious answer. And kind of an obvious question, but and I, I tend to think that obvious questions usually have obvious answers, but I'm not sure that this is one of them. Um, but anyways, that's going to be our meaty topic. But not yet. Not yet. So uh, you first. What's on your mind for our lightning round here of beginning of the show? Jabber. Uh, so it's a little bit old news, but you know, since this is called the Ruby on Rails podcast, I figured let's bring it back to some basics. Um Ruby on Rails website has uh, got a little bit of a facelift in the past couple weeks. And one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting was when, when Rails was first coming out, right? It's big, like, shtick, I guess. Like, the, the thing that was supposed to get you get you in the front door was, look, you can create a blog in 10 minutes, right? And it was, like, whiz, boom, bang, DHH, like, really, like, kind of crummy video just being, like, hey, look, look what you can do. And everyone was, like, dumbfounded at how great it was. Um, and I, I think I think it was really true when it came out, but, but it, it has aged poorly. Um, and so right on the front page of the new rubyonrails.org website is the new like at least in my opinion like the new demo like why would you choose this right and uh aside from some good like marketing speak it uh shows a demo of action cable um it builds a little uh like chat room type thing 
How do you feel uh, that? And, I mean, I find it kind of interesting, you know, like in comparison to sort of like why Rails was cool circa, I don't know, 2008 or something, uh, you know, where it was like, oh, look, you can like, you know, compartmentalize this like idea of what should I send to the user, what that thing's going to look like, and then, you know, where I'm going to get the data from essentially in three separate things. And now it's like basically like, hey, look, you can build a real time dynamic application, you know, which I feel like is, is, is just, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I can't help, but feel like it's douchey no matter how you slice it. You know, it's like every, every single service in the world that's technical now is like how to do this in a real time way. You know? Yeah. I think it's like, um, I think it's like if the highlight reel for Dwight Howard, I'm going to use an NBA analogy, showed him making the one three pointer he'll make this year. <laughs> and like you're like okay well it's good he made a three-pointer and he looks interesting but of all things to 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 use the at least in my opinion uh, an example that's least aligned with what ruby in particular i think more than rails what ruby is not good at seems really misguided like you know so the, the Really, the only time I wouldn't use Ruby on the server or Rails on the server right now is if uh, I needed many connections, like persistent connections, uh, which I think implies the second point, which is a tremendous amount of concurrency, you know, with jobs that are, are uh, you know, async in nature, right? So that, that that's like the case where I would not use Ruby and Rails. I would go. I mean, I think there are a number of decent options. I think I would consider Node. I would, uh, I would consider I don't know Go. Uh, I think, but but Ruby. I mean, that's that's its weak spot, right? Is that it's it's sort of decidedly. I, I, I maybe Phoenix. I would learn, um, especially given that a, a lot of people that I think have Rails and Ruby sensibilities have moved over to Phoenix for for this particular use case. So. I mean, if I was in charge of Ruby on Rails.org, the last thing I would do is use an example that is dead square in the middle of the use case that Rails is not good for when it's good for the majority of use cases. And when there are third-party services um, that you can use to plug the hole of connectivity to the front end for real-time chatter, especially since the majority of it is one-way, not two-way, which is sort of the way that Action Cable's design. And even if it is two-way, I think that the, you know, even if the needs are two-way, I think that there are solutions to plug that gap for a Rails app that are perfectly reasonable if that's not the kind of the core of the app. And if it is, you're, you're using the wrong tool. So I, I don't get it at all. <laughs> you, you've done it wrong. Right. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm missing something almost because, well, l let's try the other direction. Let's be more constructive. So if you were designing a, uh, the video for the Ruby on Rails.org homepage right now, what would be the three things you would focus on? Um, oh man, that's a good question. Yeah. Let's not be haters. Let's, let's, uh, let's be part of the solution, Kyle. Uh, it's not possible. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that it's, I think it's still true that, you know, the, and they do push this on the site alongside with their like rails doctrine, which is pretty interesting, but like, it's basically like, you know, this, this thing has an opinion about how you should do things, but it comes with most of what you need to do to crank out a web app, you know, in, in, in a, in a short amount of time, you know, like, I, I think that's still the draw for rails. It's, it's 
not a pain to use. It comes with a lot of things baked in, but it has an opinion on what those things should be. You know, like the action cable thing, uh, almost, almost Ruby aside, you know, like the fact that uh, connect, like connections like that can be difficult. Uh, it's just not a big bonus for Rails. You know, like it's not something that's particularly unique to Rails. You know, no, no, it's, it's not unique it's, to, and I think it's a weakness of. So it's right, like right, a double right. whammy, right? And so for me, I just don't. I, I, I get it. Like I get why, from a marketing perspective, you would want to do that because it's it is the flashy thing that everyone's like trying to do now the, nowadays. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I still think the reason I picked Rails back in the day is still the reason why I use it now. Is just that it's generally speaking, it gets the job done quickly. It's relatively enjoyable. Um, you know, and it has a lot sort of baked in. And then, you know, as you advance, you realize that those are all downsides too. Um, but, but for now, I just don't know. Like, if you're like, want, like you said, if you're going to go build a chat room or something like that, like, I'm pretty sure Meteor, which I've, which I've never personally used in any major way, like, also shows a chat app as their like demo app. You know, and that's just a full stack JavaScript framework, essentially. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I would never use Meteor, but, um, <laughs> Well, because I just I don't like the architecture at all. But I think you're right that their demo of a chat app is going to be far superior to a Rails yeah. demo, um, because both they have the sort of back end, uh, like you said, it's like a unified JavaScript framework, and so it's got the benefits of Node on the server and the benefits of of um, sort of JavaScript being completely first class on the client. And yet, uh, you know, so it's it's going to be better at the thing that we're headlining on Ruby on Rails.org. Yet worse for all the reasons I think usually you care about, you know, uh, why you pick a given framework. Right. So I don't like it at all. I think that if I was if I was putting up a video, and I'd have to think about what application would illustrate this, but I think the underlying points I'd get to is, I think you said one, which is basically anything you need comes in the box. And then my second point would, would completely undermine the first, which is, and by the way, uh, uh, any alternative you want to the things that are in the box, there are multiple outstanding options available, You're right? So you don't like test unit, you're good to go probably with something better. You don't like uh, uh, active job, uh, you know, you're good to go with something else. You know, I mean, really like almost you name it, right? That, that, that uh, whatever Rails comes with, they're like ERB, okay, you've got Haml. So you've got like great things out of the box and frankly, probably even better things in the ecosystem if you're particular, right? If you have like a more nuanced or uh, if, if you've got a stronger opinion about about what it should be. And then I think I would, I would go with a maturity that one, it's easy to find people that know, relatively at least, easier to find people that know Ruby and Rails very well if you've got a question about how to do something, you can find many blog posts, most of which wouldn't be written in the last six months, right? They'd be written a while ago that would still be valid because it doesn't change that quickly. Like I would I would, I would, would kind of say, hey, it's the safe choice that is gonna hit 90% of uses for businesses. And the ones that it's not gonna hit are massive scale, uh, which is like point, you know, 0.0001% of the work any developer does. Uh, or uh, huge concurrency, which is not the majority of web apps. So if you fit, you know, down into the left of that of that quadrant, anywhere but in the top, top, top right, and you want something that's safe, then go with Ruby on Rails. And if you know, it's simple to me. It's like an easy thing to pitch. Like maybe that's not exciting, but I mean, hey. <laughs> 
you kind of got to sell what you what you are i think yeah yeah no i agree nailed it yeah i also kind of don't like again not to be negative on this but i would i think that the new site looks nice but i think that um Basecamp does a disservice to itself and to Rails by branding Rails similarly. Bugs me. Like it's got to be that some you know the same designers. And hey, I think that's nice that Basecamp probably you know had their own designers do the work. But I don't, I don't love that there's just sort of a little bit too much overlap there. I'd prefer kind of like Ember versus Tilda. It just has its own personality, its own world. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. I don't, as soon as I went to the page, I was like, "Oh, look, it's Basecamp." I mean, yeah. we're, we're being rails. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which emoji captured my face when I had that same moment, but it wasn't the sunglasses smiley face one. It was more <laughs> like the <laughs> hold your nose one. Uh, and that's not to say that I I don't like Basecamp style. I think it's fine. I just don't think that Basecamp and Rails are the same thing. So I'd rather they you know have their own have their own brands, so to speak. Wow, well, that, was a, that was a pretty good top this show uh, topic there, sir. Yeah, see what I'm saying? What else you got? You're in a roll. Oh, man. Oh, God. <laughs> this is like work. Hey, you're rewarded with more work. <laughs> yeah, that's why I just <laughs> phone it in. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> oh, you know what? While you're thinking, I should do our first sponsor. Uh, our uh, top of the show sponsor today is Braintree. You know Braintree, their code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and searching for simple payments solutions, you should check out Braintree. The Braintree V.0, not approved by Kyle, that name, by the way, but their V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple mobile payment types. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, credit cards, and more, all with one simple integration. All it takes is a small snippet of code and you're all set up in less than 10 minutes. Plus, if you need help, they have quick, knowledgeable developer support and excellent documentation. You can learn more if you go to braintreepayments.com slash rails podcast, and you're going to get $50,000 in transactions fee free. Thanks to Braintree. Again, braintreepayments.com slash rails podcast. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Back to you. Brain tree. Yeah. Um, we don't splice the ads in later, Kyle. We do it live. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm trying to think of the things that I've been dealing with lately. Have you seen the new... I talked a while ago about all my grand plans for uh, the Amazon Echo, or Alexa, as I like to call her. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That was and, one of my one of my favorite ideas we've ever had live on the show, is the... Uh, uh, oh toodles yeah the good news is, is that i've done nothing with it um <laughs> but more importantly have you seen the echo dot nope okay so the amazon uh, echo is like the, a tall canister that has an internal speaker you can play music from the uh, amazon echo dot is a very small disc that only has enough of a speaker i believe for for uh alexa to like respond to you but like it does all of its music and like major playing through a line out. And so the cool thing about this is that you can get these little things and like stick them in multiple rooms of your house. And so like, you're not, you're not just stuck to having like this one location. Um, and so I thought that was pretty cool and like pretty compelling. And so I started working on trying to hack a Peapod, the grocery delivery service so that I could send groceries to myself, uh, from Alexa. But I was, 
uh, struggling to not just screen scrape the hell out of their site and ultimately cause myself hours and hours and hours of pain uh, to keep that up and running. Um, but but the uh, the echo is the echo dot is pretty legit. Unfortunately, you can only buy it if you uh, own an Alexa or an Amazon echo. You have to like order it through her. You have to say like, Alexa, order an Amazon Echo Dot, <laughs> and she's like, "Okay." <laughs> uh, but it's 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 been pretty cool technology, uh, and I'm excited so about long the smaller Echo. version. Oh you're, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna play the other side. So I listened to the episode of uh, there's gonna be two podcasts in a row that I have plugged this podcast, but the uh, Stratechery, uh, well, the Exponent podcast by Ben Thompson and James Allworth. Uh, ben writes Stratechery, and they t- they had a, uh, an entire episode maybe two ago about the uh, the Amazon Echo and they were both gushing about it and how Amazon's figured it out and how Apple missed the boat etc. And I I'm not buying and I think almost everything that Ben writes is pretty smart, but I'm not buying the argument in that it, if uh, let's let's imagine at WWDC coming up that Apple announces that uh, now. Uh, basically, everything that Amazon's announced about Alexa in terms of extensibility is true for Siri. It, it's a way better value proposition because you know oh, what I'm all, man. Ooh. You, you know what I'm always near. You know what I'm always near. My phone always. Yeah, it doesn't matter though because you go, "Hey Siri, what's the score of the Celtics game tonight?" And then Siri goes, "I've, I've, let me, I've Googled uh, Irish Celtic dance for you." Yeah, yeah, but that's that's that that's uh, that's like driving, you know, looking at the bumper in front of you. Like, no, like, no, yes, no, no. there's How nothing fundamental about there's nothing fundamental How? that is go, is it says that in three years this will be the case. And like oh, a thing that uh, approximately a hundred people have used day to day in their life with Alexa being proof that Amazon's figured it out, I think is a little jump in the gun on this. Oh one. man, which no is not way. to say that I'm. I'm long on Apple's ability to get it right. I just think like, okay, like, uh, oh, man. Uh, ease up, ease up tiger. You no, know, the, the, I can't. The, I, the proms I, all night. Let's not get too excited. Too I, no early. way. I am pushing back on this as hard as I can. It is so much better. Now it isn't like singularity or anything. Like she will tell you like, I can't respond to that or I don't know or whatever, you know, but like in comparison to the number of times that I've clicked Siri and I go, Hey Siri, What's the weather today? And Siri provides me the information, right? Even even just compares, comparing that question to Alexa, Alexa's answer is so much more human and like useful, and it slightly changes every time you ask her the question in a way that makes you feel very comfortable. You know, like when you talk to her and ask her questions, like it feels it feels like such a better experience. I think that's why people gush. No, it, yeah, but I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just saying that like. There's nothing about that. I, I'm not buying that there's anything fundamental about the difference between Amazon and Echo or Amazon and Apple that over the midterm that will remain true. Like, I'm not disagreeing that it's true now. I'm just saying, like, like uh, right now, it, it doesn't matter a lot because no one has the device. And the idea that I need a canister in my kitchen to give me this functionality instead of the phone in my pocket is ridiculous. Like, of course the phone's going to win. I'm betting phone all day long. Oh, yeah, but like, Take my money, give me the betting slip, I will yeah, cash yeah. it later. I don't care about that at all. I don't care if this thing is an implant in my brain. I'd still pick Alexa over Siri every day. Well, today, and- no, that's not my question. My question is, which is going to win? And, and I believe that it's easier. Uh, this is a better way to say it. Which is easier? 
Is it easier for Apple to close the gap between Siri and Alexa or for uh, Amazon to get me to carry a canister in my pocket? And uh, yeah, I think- why can't why can't Amazon just offer Alexa as an app? Oh, like, then why then, not just do that? Well, then who cares? I mean, then. Well, that's my point, though. I feel like I do think that like the problem isn't distribution. I think Amazon has decided to distribute in the home because it's a different set of queries. You know, oh, bullshit. I don't buy that for a millisecond that it's a different set of queries. This is where I think there's a logical leap. Like, I think that the reason that they're not distributing it through the phone is that they know that that is actually what matters. What matters is that you've got the thing with it. Like, like the idea that, uh, like, like, so there are no more cameras anymore, right? People just use the camera that's with them. Yet, for this other, uh, this other category of tech features, which is asking random questions that you want an answer to or an action off of, that that somehow fits a canister better. This is like uh, being long on point and shoot cameras. You know, it's going to lose. Here we go. Oh, man. I totally... Yeah, but like that's like saying being long on point and shoot film cameras versus long on point and shoot digital SLRs. Yeah, you would have lost both. Digital SLRs are a who cares little niche of the business. You know, no one uses them. Oh, man. They don't... I mean, I, you know, I have had digital SLRs, but I mean, if you look at uh, uh, what photos people take, and I, I don't just mean schleps that are taking crappy photos, I mean like just about anyone, the answer is they're taking photos with their phone. And I think that same is going to be for uh, voice response. The phone's going to win. And uh, yeah, but so what? Like, I don't, I, that's my point is it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The canister is not what makes it good. Like, the canister, I don't give a crap. If Siri, would answer my questions as good as Alexa does, then it, yeah, I would agree with you completely. And this would conversation would have already been over and we would have said, yep, yep, yep. And I would have popped another Savannah smile in my mouth. Mm-hmm. But well, like, I, I'm just saying it will. Like, I mean, that, it that... W- no, but there's no proof that that's true. Like Siri has been out and has had way more distribution than Alexa has at all, at all. And it is not better. It is not better. And you got to imagine that the more input you can get into the system, the better the responses should be coming. And they are not. They're not getting better. If anything, they're getting worse. And so, oh, what, I, so what Apple's doing is good. Like, I, I agree the Hey Siri thing is great. So, sorry, everyone who's playing this aloud. But, like, you know, every time, like, the Hey Siri from across the room or while it's on the table, I think that's a great idea. I mean, that's awesome. That gets, that gets the far field where I don't need to take my. Uh, you know, phone out and press it. Like, I really appreciate that. I think that's, I do think that that is something that's magical, but you're right. Apple can do that in two seconds, but there's so many things that you can ask Siri that she screws up. Oh, no, I agree. I'm just saying, okay, let's, let's end this segment by placing a bet. Uh, I'm going to put the time period at three years from today and we'll, we'll ask Siri to set a reminder uh, on this. So three years for today, from today, um uh how, what measure do we want to use so we'll just say three years from today we're going to have the conversation where is uh siri and alexa on two dimensions on how much you use them a and how useful they are and compare and contrast in those two dimensions and my bet is that you will you personally kyle will use siri more and I, i'm betting for me too and it will be approximately as good as Alexa. Oh man, this is it, it, that's uh, my that's my wager. What's your I wager? Mean, it's ah, no way. I mean, how good? No way. I mean, I so uh, today, like today, right? I 
use Siri this morning because I was upstairs, right? And I had my phone. And so I click Siri and I ask for the weather and she gives me an answer, right? So I'm totally with you there. Totally with you. And then I go downstairs and I ask Siri or ask Alexa, you know, hey, what's the weather? What's going to be the weather on Saturday? What will be the temperature? When's it going to snow next? And all these things. And it's like, boom, 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 because it's so much better. I'd rather ask Alexa. I'd, I'd rather go downstairs and ask Alexa. And I'm just saying, this is just me, right? I don't think that the canister is super magical. I, I agree with you that if I could have Siri, if I, like, if I... If I could have Alexa replace Siri like a like a widget, you know, like if I mm-hmm. could just say press this button or do this thing and just have Alexa answer, done. Like uh, totally agree with you. And I just don't think that in the what almost ten years maybe that the iPhone has existed, and then maybe the last what five I don't know four that series existed six I don't know I have no track of time. Uh, four, I think four sounds about right to me. Right, you know, it's just like it's not that great and i do think that one thing that makes siri very interesting but i don't think amazon has truly figured out yet is the developer side of things like now i can ask alexa to like change my my thermostat and i can have it turn lights on and off which i do do all the time uh because we have a light that like is hard to get to and so i ask alexa to turn it on and off all the time and you can do you're just just lazy Don't, don't give me this reason that it's hard to get to the light no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that you need an Alexa to turn a light on, but I'm saying as part of a developer system, it's it's been way better than trying to convince Siri to truly hear what I'm saying and turn it on and off using HomeKit, which has been a, like a pretty much a disaster so far HomeKit. Um, and so it's just like the developer ecosystem I think is a good play again for Amazon in the long term of that ecosystem is now any developer could just add a script in and it'll work natively instead of, you know, basically how siri works is just still a closed system which is still pretty surprising to me that yeah i agree i mean hey i am i am a, an amazon bull so i mean not that i care about the stock price but I'm, I'm saying about their overall business and what they add to the world uh i am uh equally bullish on on amazon i just think as it relates to devices that respond to your voice with answers and actions uh that the uh, tortoise will win the race, but I'm gonna I'm gonna set the alarm three years from now. We're gonna talk. We'll see. We'll see what it is. <laughs> All right, just don't upgrade your phone, otherwise that thing's going away. <laughs> oh, haha. Ha. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's do our second sponsor, and then we'll get to our our meaty topic. So are you thinking about becoming a software developer? Well, you should check out Dev Bootcamp, the original short-term immersive software development program that transforms those new to coding into job-ready full-stack web developers. You can learn front-end and back-end web development, teamwork and leadership skills in a rigorous and inclusive environment. They have several locations around the country and they're accepting applications now. You can learn a lot more uh, on their website, which I think does a very good job of explaining their philosophy and their program. It's at devbootcamp.com ruby. A couple details about their program. So they've been around a while. Uh, like I said, they're the original a short-term immersive program. They have 1,900 graduates that are out in the workforce now. It's nine weeks uh, remote part-time, then nine weeks on-site full-time, and one week of career prep at the end to get you ready to go get that first uh, full-time job. And uh, so 19 weeks total. Again, devbootcamp.com slash Ruby. Go check them out, and thanks to them for sponsoring. All right. We've gotten through a lot of episodes before ever having it, like, Apple chat. I don't think that I think that's the first first time today. 
Yeah, I'm I'm anti Apple. You want to know why I'm against Apple too? Apple TV. <laughs> yeah, I hear you there. Apple TV and my wife and I both buy episodes of children's shows on our two separate accounts and they are family shared but if you Mm. want to watch something you got to go hmm who bought that because i can only view purchases by the person who bought them on the stupid apple tv so when my child is screaming space bubble guppies space bubble guppies and i'm going (laughs) okay what season is that and then who bought it because that's the only way you can find it on the non voice activated version on the uh, speaking of so the the voice so i've got the new apple tv and uh uh, I find its best feature to be its most frustrating one in that the the Siri recognition is so fast and accurate that you're like, why? Why is this better? It doesn't make any sense that it would be better than my phone. My phone should smoke it. It's got way more processing power. It's, you know, microphones probably, like everything about it is better. And yet that Apple TV, if I say like open the NBA app like that fast, if I said it backwards, I think it'd get it. And yet, you know, with Siri, as you said before, you know, your results may vary. So anyways, enough Apple chat. We're done with it. We are done with it. Um, any other little te- topics before we get into our, our meaty one? We had some uh, other good ones. Maybe some of yours <laughs> that you've added since I stopped looking at the list are pretty good. Um, all right, I'm going to alternate tech, not in tech. Uh, so EmberConf was this week out in Seattle. Or no, not Seattle, Portland. And I thought about going. I, I, I'm not really one that goes to many events. Um, never have, but... Uh, this one I kind of was interested in because I thought that they would announce good stuff, and they did. So the videos aren't up yet, but I've been following along with uh, the sort of the live uh, tweeting and live blogging of what was announced. So much good stuff. I think if you're if you want to scratch your CS itch, read the um, uh, check out Tom Dale's feed and look for the Storify off of his live tweeting of um, Yehuda Katz's demo of the new Glimmer rendering engine super super interesting so i've kind of i've kind of been um i've been jonesing a little bit this week which wishing that i had been out there for it but i, I think that feeling will res- reverse quickly when i uh, remember that i didn't have to travel back and forth and then i can watch it all online but anyhow you still haven't looked at ember right um i mean i know that a squirrel was the creator right is that <laughs> it or i think it's not a squirrel uh chipmunk uh, it looks like a chipmunk. I should know this too. Uh, interestingly, they—I uh, was looking at their um, like swag store today, or a swag store at least that sells Ember gear, because they um, just this week, or maybe last week, right before EmberConf, they came out with a like a female version of the mascot, um, which I thought was really really nice actually. Like I thought that was a. Especially like in the context of the overall Ember community management ethos, like I, I think if it was done by the wrong group, it would be seen as pandering. But I think Ember has gotten this point so right over over the years so far that I think it was really nice. Um, so now they've got their their you know primary mascot, which is this like little male chipmunk, which I'm, I'm blinking on the name of. I'll look it up while we're talking. And he's got a he's got a female friend, which I think is uh, nice. Cool. Yeah, I was looking at it because I the babies like uh, as you'd imagine like stuffed animals a lot. We're always buying more because the dog destroys them soon after they enter the house. And I was thinking about getting them the uh, the little girl Ember doll. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
But then I, I didn't, uh, true story, the reason I didn't is that I was, I was sort of like looking at the picture of these uh, plush dolls online and I wasn't super confident that like the eyes wouldn't pop out into their mouth and they choke. So <laughs> like, oh, open source software uh, uh, mascot dolls do not seem like the, I don't know, I'm going to let someone else try. Yeah, I just give my kid t-shirts. Does he like t-shirts? Uh, he wears them. <laughs> Does he has he reached the age yet where he has an opinion? Uh, yeah, he does not like jeans. He would prefer no. sweatpants. Do you um, do you give him the like the sweatpants that look like jeans yet? <laughs> yes, we do have one pair of sweatpants jeans. Yes, what do they call it? Jeggings. Jeggings. Yeah. yeah, they're not they're not quite jeggings just because <laughs> they're not that tight. But yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to tell this story, but we also get, uh, the, we have also gotten the babies, like both real jeans and then, uh, jeggings. And, uh, I think the jeggings are completely hilarious. Uh, tell me a little bit about GraphQL. Yeah. You put, so you, I've put, been, you put this on the list and I, I am interested. Yeah. So, I mean, I know that you're a big, um, user of JSON API and there's a bunch of other, um, you know, sort of offerings in that space, like uh, like OData, um, a couple others, and GraphQL is something that sort of caught my eye uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, and so I've been researching it a little bit just to kind of understand a, a bit of its background and how it works and what its purpose is uh, and how it might be fundamentally different than like REST or, or even JSON API from, from an outsider's perspective. Um, it's pretty interesting. So GraphQL is essentially just a querying language that was written by Facebook uh, to allow for easier querying of your data primarily for front-end developers uh like that's its main purpose is letting front-end developers build queries to get the data that they need as well as you know make updates or they call it mutating their data um so like on facebook when you click a like button it can send a graphql query to a single endpoint saying okay like this like this comment and then return to me uh you know all the people that or the first three people that have liked this so i can you know update the view uh in a single query um, and so it reduces round trips uh and you define essentially what data you would like um, and then you get it back in a sort of flat way. So in, in comparison to JSON API um, or, or some of these other offerings where you get the resources um, and then you you or the code essentially maps the resources via their ID and type uh, to everywhere it's used in the return response, uh, GraphQL essentially just says like, okay, like what data would you want and how should it look? You know, basically like I want... Um, I don't know. I want uh, the user, and then I want the user's tweets, and then I want the user's likes of those tweets, and I want the logins of everyone who liked one of these tweets or something like that. Um, just by defining that, you would get the data back in that exact same format. Um, so the, the query looks very similar, ultimately, to the response from the server. Um, it's it seems like cool. that's the big difference because... Yeah. So there's a lot of similarity between... GraphQL and JSON API in terms of objective, at least. But like the JSON API deal is that uh, while it it kind of flattens the response in its own way, and that it there are only two, everything's at the same level. So basically, there's the resource you request, and then even if you request um, it to include related resources, you know, n deep, whatever n is. Mm -hmm. 
it will it hoists them all up to the top level and then just puts a pointer like you said with the type and id that you can use to then look up at the top level's array of included things which one to get to avoid duplication because a lot of times you know the same thing would appear again and again otherwise um I think that the, the interesting difference is that, because I think GraphQL looks really nice, is, you know, GraphQL is, is, it seems like it gives you the flexibility to define exactly how you'd like it, and so, uh, uh, how you like the response, so that uh, uh, you don't have to worry so much about conforming to sort of the, the way that it serializes things on the other side, and that's also the negative, I think. Which is that uh, you know you have to specify how you want things, and in the JSON API deal, I mean everything is sort of done the same way, serialized the same way, and then what you can specify is what is included, and in terms of resources, and which of their fields are filtered, um, which I think gets the it sort of gets at the same benefit, trying to amp up the convention and amp down the configuration, whereas I think GraphQL sort of teeters the other direction but they they're both going at the same thing at least that's my impression yeah. is that, yeah, is I mean, that they're both right? going in the, they're both definitely going in the same direction i think or, or trying to solve a, the same problem you know of rest is kind of showing its age in such a way that you know asking a resource for whatever the server decides you want is expensive for everyone you have to process a bunch of data that you don't want and the server has to build a you know a bunch of data that you probably don't want um I think that uh, it's it's it's. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's a rest. I mean, it seems like yeah, it's not a rest thing, but I think it's inherent to how we have decided to build rest endpoints. You know, like in, I, in, I, I think that when the API, like <laughs> yeah, I think when the API response is kind of a function of uh, what was needed by the first server rendered web app. Or you know, whatever other app, but let's say server rendered web app, th that feels like the smell. Whereas like the the more modern way is to provide an API that allows you to sort of compose what you want out of each call, which is going to be very different by client or just by feature, by you know by by route in a client or or by app or integration. Um, I've gone to that way of building for a while now, so I think I, I haven't built an app that didn't use that this basic architectural idea in maybe like 15 months now. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 there is no turning back. I, I, I'm 100% positive that it's the right approach. I mean, I think I could be convinced that GraphQL or JSON API are better. I use JSON API because it's the Ember default, and I like it, and I think that JSON API resources is really good, but I I think that Graph, GraphQL's goals are the same goals, so I'm sure it'd be fine, too, if I had tooling for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think having tooling for it's not a, not a lowercase item. I mean, that's a big deal. You know, back, back to your sort of points about the benefits of Rails before, I mean, the idea that you have a set of things, like, a, you know, a, a way to rig up the controllers to, you know, uh, to handle GraphQL responses and, and, and serialize the, or GraphQL requests and serialize the responses. And you've got things on the client side that know how to make those requests and then deal with the, the you know, deserialization on the other side. That's a big deal probably as big of a deal as any of the details around like whether the particulars of the format are nicer or not. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you're going to learn more about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not done. There's a whole like uh, extension, and the, sp- the the spec is relatively small, so it's it's pretty e- simple to kind of wrap your head around. Um, not simple, but whatever. Uh, it's 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 definitely something that I'm interested in. I'm intrigued. I have I have been looped in, so it's still pretty young. I think it was officially like released in air quotes like the spec was decided on late last year mm-hmm. um so it doesn't have a ton of adoption uh like publicly but my my sort of understanding being in uh the graphql slack and talking to people that there's a ton of places that are using this primarily internally um but it's sort of intriguing to think of it as a option that we you know you would release externally as well well i'm all for anything that uh, that gives the Use consumers of an API more control over, you know, what they're going to get back and how. Um, yeah. Early, or at least, or at least what and when. You know, maybe the how I could I could take either way, but anyhow. All right. Well, let's get to our last topic. And by the way, we've got a bunch of good stuff that uh, good stuff we didn't even cover. We're gonna have to keep our uh, keep our list for next week. Yeah. Uh, okay, major topic for the week is how to know when to ship. Uh, do you think this is a, a strength or weakness of yours? Uh, I think it, uh, I think I think a relative strength. Could I borrow the strength? Are you are you lending it? Uh, yeah, the interest rate's high, but we can make something work. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think there's kind of a couple parts to this, right? The first is sort of the product win, you know, like how ready is a feature from a product and functionality standpoint. Um, and then I think there's probably uh, just as big, if not bigger, technical side, right? How do how do I ship this with enough confidence that I am, when it goes out, I'm going to feel comfortable and it's not going to break and ruin everything, but not wait until you're absolutely sure, you know, uh, and you're spending weeks uh, preparing for something that is ultimately a non-event. You know, there's a balance there too, just as much as there's a balance in getting something out from a product perspective too early or missing the boat and getting something out that you know should have been out a year ago. All right, so let's go through a quick checklist. So let's say I said, uh, okay, we've got this feature that's our product that's you know nearly ready, right? It's it's ninety five percent of the way there. We want to get ready to ship it coming up in a week. Um, what are the categories of things that we absolutely need to make sure are not jacked up on release day? Like, like, like when the rubber's hitting the road and you're starting to decide about whether it's time to ship, uh, to ship it, uh, like what's on your list of, uh, just as long as the following isn't bad. Um, so most of it is for me is about mitigating risk at release and less about, uh, ensuring that. I didn't like forget something or that I missed like or that I you know ran like n plus one you know checkers on it or anything like oh that. yeah whatever on that part by the way <laughs> totally agree and so for me it's uh, I think I probably most rely on a tool like flipper um, which is a gem uh, written by John Nunemaker who works at github uh, but it's a very it's a very cool gem that basically uh, makes it simple for you to turn on and off features both wholesale by user type by you know by basically anything including percentages um, and so one of the things that I do when I'm comfortable with the feature from a you know functionality perspective but I'm not sure like okay I'm not sure if this is really gonna like 
do well in the in the real world uh you know from a performance uh view then by using flipper i can go okay i'm gonna make i'm gonna give this to one percent of users right like only one percent it's gonna be a consistent one percent it's not gonna be like a floating one percent where like one percent of requests it's gonna be one percent of users and those users can use the feature and i can watch you know my error tracking i can watch um the related queries if that's related you know uh making sure that there's no you know comments on twitter or there's no comment there's no comments in zendesk or whatever help tool you use um and then sort of ratchet that up or down uh you can do the same thing by just choosing people like you know quote unquote beta testing um, but if it's something that's, you know, one of those features that isn't a critical path, but could have a high, uh, risk, say, um, a web socket that, uh, allows you to push notifications to the user, right? That's a new feature that you're building. You're comfortable with it, but you don't know how it's going to work at scale or if it, you're going to get creamed, then you can say, okay, we'll just open the web socket for 1% of users and that 1% will just have it. Um, that's, that's one of the things that I would do to gain confidence, um, the other thing that I've done in the past, uh, which I definitely didn't invent, but um, I believe uh, 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 Zach Holman possibly, you know, came up with it, at least in the GitHub context, was uh, dark shipping. So the idea is that you build a second Rails controller action and you call that via Ajax, do everything, including rendering out the template, but then you just return nothing to the user. So the user goes to a page that now has a completely new version hiding behind the scenes, but you wanna go, okay, if I were to get all this traffic on the new version, will it perform okay or will it fall over? What you can do is you let the real page load, you, you trigger an Ajax from that user, so you're getting a, like, a real experience about uh, traffic and everything. Uh, but then you go to this new controller action, which returns nothing back to the end user, so you're not worried about leaking anything. But that new controller action is doing everything that it should, querying the database, building the view, you know, uh, rendering out the view. And so obviously if you're using a, a front-end JavaScript framework, you're not really gonna be testing out the full end-to-end, -end, right? Because if that last mile of JavaScript is not very performant, you're kind of screwed. But for at least the back-end side of things, uh, dark shipping is another way to lower the, the, the sort of risk uh, of shipping a new feature. And you can tie dark shipping to feature flagging too. So you can use Flipper to say, I want to turn the dark ship on for 1% of users, right? Or 10% or 50% or whatever. I would say those are probably the two biggest tools for a new feature from a, a, a sort of a technical performance, uh, you know, standpoint. What about, so, okay, so performance is one dimension and that certainly matter. I mean, somewhere like GitHub, that's probably going to matter. I don't know, maybe number two overall as you know, what, or I don't mm -hmm. know, I don't know what rank, but high. Yeah. Um, so what about, what about security? You know, what, what yeah, what's sure. your approach to make sure that the permissions are right on something? And I mean, obviously, for a, for an app with as complicated now of a permission system as GitHub, it looks complicated. At least I think it probably is. Um, it, that's a con that's obviously a concern. If it's even a simpler app, it's a it's a pretty significant concern, especially when you go API first. I think it, then it increases because you're sort of like the surface area of the attack is a little bigger because um, you sort of expose the primitives a little bit more than perhaps you have on on uh, uh, controller actions and more of a, a sort of old older style Rails app. So tell me a bit about how you approach that. Yeah, so 
Um, most of my experience, to be honest, is just in the back end. And so a lot of my sort of front end skills have waned there around like, you know, uh, cores and cross site scripting and all that sort of stuff. And so I'll focus on the back end. Uh, we're, we're, we're lucky at GitHub, obviously, to have like an app security team. And so they have an internal tool called Sentinel, but that is essentially, I, I believe, an amalgamation of open source security based scanning tools. Like, let's look at the code and make sure that it's, you know, not doing anything gross. Um, but that's not going to save you from a permissions problem uh, or, you know, accidentally leaking data that shouldn't actually go out because you're not scoping a query. Uh, and so from for our perspective, we have a sort of internal DSL that like doesn't really make sense to open source, but you could create something uh, very similar. Uh, we call it AuthZ, which basically goes and says for every endpoint that we offer, run a test against it with a multitude of different types of users uh, with a multitude of different past scopes. Um, and then what responses or data should I be getting back uh, based on that matrix of people versus scopes? So for example, if you're going to the slash repositories endpoint, um, or let's just say user repositories, I want to get this user's repositories, right? If you're an anonymous user, you shouldn't get any data back. If you are an authenticated user, you should only see repositories that you have ownership of. Um, and so this is a little tiny DSL that builds, you know, um, I, I don't know, it might be like 3N or 4N uh, uh, assertions that then go and say, okay, like make let's make sure that we're not accidentally leaking out data because it doesn't have uh, we're, we're we're providing data for the wrong scopes, the wrong OAuth scopes, or we're providing data to the wrong people, um, or some mixture of those two. A little DSL like that that automatically does those tests. Um, is probably your best bet to ensure that you don't accidentally add a leak uh, because no one's going to do it on purpose. And when you're writing tests to say, okay, you know, this endpoint should only allow repositories for this user, and you write a test and you say, you know, this endpoint should disallow repositories for no user, and you write that test. The benefit of the AuthC is that it gives you just a couple more pieces of coverage. Um, that you know, trying to write all the tests by hand would be a little bit tricky uh, to make sure that you're actually getting everything. So um, it's been something that's pretty helpful. It's definitely not a cure-all. Uh, there's still there's still problems and and little places that we miss things. But um, I think, but besides automated scanning, the the human element of things, having really good security people, um, and then you know, little DSLs like this that make it easier for us to not accidentally miss uh, data. Uh, leakage. Um, that's the biggest thing. Have I ever bragged up Pundit to you? The Pundit, Jeff? Oh, man. I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to think. It sounds so familiar. Pun Pundit's my favorite. Um, I, I, I've switched to this now for a, a long time, and it's I love the approach, so I'd, I'd recommend it's P-U-N-D-I-T, like, like, like political pundit. Um, and the the concept is that you, de you develop policies per resource. So for example, let's say you had a customer and so you have a customer policy and then uh, a new policy is uh, initialized with a user and a record. And then that policy you can call, you know, it gives you a bunch of predicate methods like create, update, shut up, uh, you know, destroy, whatever. Um, that you can call to say, okay, can this person in the context of this individual record do the action that they've, you know, the, the, that's that's being asked? And then there's a second idea, which is the scope, which says, 
okay, for this user and this, uh, call it base scope, which could just be the, the model class or it could be an active record relation. Um, but, you know, so for this base scope plus this user, um, what is the uh, active record relation, the scope of that resource that they have visibility to, right? That then you can compose into other things. And uh, I found it to be super helpful because then you, you, for every single resource, you have this policy. You have a, I have a spec for every resource then that is just dedicated to permissions on that resource that's independent of the controller. This is the part that I think is really smart. Right, so you can sort of reason about it independently, like, okay, who should uh, who should be able to do what in what types of situations, and what should they have visible to them, and uh, so that gives you like these base policies, and then I just sort of inject those into the the actions that can be performed by the controllers. So in it, most of the apps I use now are use JSON API resources that, that sort of provide a, a, a single base class where I can say, okay, you know, you're always going to get the collection of records for any controller action whatsoever. It's always going to be in the context of the user and the policy. Um, and then for any of the following types of actions, you're always going to you know, uh, filter that action through a test on the related um, on the related uh, permission on the policy that relates to the given record. I found it to be so helpful that that approach, because then you know, it's 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 it, whenever I have a question about the policy, I mean, I know from my tests of the way that the controllers are built via the base resources that like I know that no matter what the scopes and the, the pundit policy permissions are being called and then the question just is are they right and which is what I like because then having them as separate policy classes allows you to sort of remove the request side of things and just say okay like does is, is this what we intended because I think some to something you said before most of the risks that I see in apps now um, aren't about technical risks because I think that the tooling is is pretty good in the in you know Rails itself and um, you know related libraries we use. The problem is basically that I made a mistake or one of my team members made a mistake and like you know said that this type of person could do something that they shouldn't be able to do. Whoops. Uh, and like you know <laughs> hard to hard to have something automated catch that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When it's just a logical thing. You know, yeah. so the more obvious that logic can be and sort of separated into its own thing, the better. Uh, anyways, so I, I tend to sweat that a little bit, right? Right, just like, especially if you've gone API first, the the you've made it quite easy to extract data or you know mutate data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, you make a mistake, and it's you know, it's not going to take someone a lot of work to to exploit it. Yeah, the whole the whole tree. Exactly. Yeah, especially with something like JSON API, or this would be true with GraphQL too, where you've sort of given the tool to allow them to get at it pretty easily. Yeah, yeah, in the way they want it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good, good. Here you go, boys and girls. <laughs> uh, all right, so I say one more. So we've got two things so far. We've got sort of the performance issues. I think you listed off a, a bunch of great techniques to uh, walk before you run on the deploy to make sure you're not getting hit by unexpected... Um, Outcomes on the performance side. We talked a little bit about the permission side. What's your number three on the list of like headline concerns that you think about before shipping something? Um, I mean, from a backend perspective, uh, again, kind of cheating, but I, I, I'm concerned about the 
longevity and the maintainability of the feature, right? I mean, when you build an API that's publicly publicly consumed, whatever you put out there is going to be used, you know, for a pretty long time, <laughs> for forever ish, <laughs> you know. And so, by breaking it, you're not like you're not changing the UI where humans can go, oh, huh. This thing's not here anymore. I, I wonder if it's over here. You know, when you're talking to computers, a computer doesn't give a crap and it's just going to explode. And so I do a lot of talking to integrators, you know, before features go live that I think are particularly risky or I'm just not confident in them. You know, show them the examples. Um, one of the things that GitHub does uh, kind of uniquely, I guess, is like, um, the previews. So whenever we add a new API endpoint or significantly change an existing endpoint, we offer a preview that uses um, a, a new uh, accept header. Basically, we re we require you to like explicitly opt into the preview by when you make the request, say pass a pass a accept header that says like this feature, like I want this feature, um, and it allows us a way to get it out into the public, but lets us have enough leeway to make changes to it um so when it during a preview we can break it at any time um you know we don't have to worry about okay what are we going to break uh, but it allows us to get the feature in front of people um and let them use it the way that they want to use it before we have to put it in stone because at least in a ui right you're you're basically just deciding if I were to remove this or change it significantly how painful would that be for the end user in a primarily emotional and then workflow sense you know like when github changes the navigation you know everyone goes well shit like what do these icons mean <laughs> or whatever okay. uh and but that's something that we can overcome because we're humans computers can't do that uh especially when working with an api and so by just doing good old-fashioned sort of hey can i show this to you and get your get your feedback you know if i were to put this change into production what would this allow you to do if i were to put this change into production uh, what would you need to do to support it? You know, is there anything that you wish this would do? Stuff like those kinds of questions that aren't particularly leading. Like, is this good? You know, like, are you okay with this? You know, would you implement this? Things like that generally lead lead to, um, uh, you know, sort of empty answers. You know, like if like the lean startup thing. You know, where you're like, hey, I just I'm gonna build a service that will deliver dog food to your house. Would you buy this? Yeah, definitely. I have a dog. I would love to buy this. Okay, great. And I'll pay me. And they're like, nothing. And so this is sort of the answer to that. I think from a back end perspective, since it is a little bit more sensitive, is just find a system that works well for you to get it in people's hands before you're committing to its sort of existence forever <laughs> yeah because i mean it, it's an interesting um contrast when you think about the the uh lean startup kind of you know act fast break things work it out later and a more sort of split between the front end back end more focus on apis and i don't mean like the public anyone can use them mash up apis but i mean like you know that the app first and foremost is a server that provides you know an api that you know it, its own companies applications you know both web and native and other integrations will use like that that is not an architecture where you can be like oh we'll just adjust later it just doesn't work yeah you know, unless you want everyone to including yourself to just hate yourself you know it's just 
right? It's just so awful when people change APIs that 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 have been promoted as you know solidified at least. I think to your point, if if it's like, hey, try this out and does this feel right and how you know, okay, fine, then that's a a good opportunity to speak now. Or uh, <laughs> I've got a funny aside about this. I was going to say speak now or forever hold your peace. So what would you have done in this situation? So this this week I got an email from a guy that I work with. Um, a customer, I guess you'd call him, like a, a a a a guy at a company that I do business with that is in a position of power, but I and I, and I have a very good relationship with him, and uh, he has a pretty good sense of humor. And uh, anyway, so he sent an email and said to a very big group of people, say twelve people, speak now or forever hold your peace. P I E C E <laughs> of pie. <laughs> So, okay, here are your options. Uh, do you make a joke to the group about that? Do you make a joke to him? Do you uh, politely mention that um, maybe he's got that expression wrong, or do you do nothing? I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear the Daigle method is to do absolutely nothing. Yeah, it's uh, very obvious. <laughs> but I, I, if I were if if I were comfortable with the person, I would definitely have to make a joke. I would have no choice. It it would be, it would be automatic almost. <laughs> I wrote and deleted three emails. <laughs> True story. One was I forget what. Uh, I would maybe try to use the word peace as much as possible in the response. Like my preferred joke was to reply just with a, a photo from uh, Boys in the Hood. Because that, like, that felt, it, it felt very funny to me of like, you know, them holding their peace. Uh, like one, that movie is, you know, I like the movie. And two, I was pretty sure he wouldn't get the joke. In which three would 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 make it like more funny for me because then that would be like a whole new series of jokes about you know not only did you not get that but then the reference it got worse. But I deleted those, um, and then I wrote an email because uh, because then I got convinced that he actually thinks that it's P I E C, which I actually think is I think that's the deal in this situation. <laughs> and then I felt a little. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, because because I I didn't want to be the recipient of the 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 anxiety of him realizing that for like 30 years in a row he's used that uh, expression incorrectly, and then it made me then I, I got to thinking you know that's probably the sort of thing that you say out loud nine out of ten times. So, so maybe but maybe it's just one of those things like. Uh, what do you call those like uh, those tests when you were a kid in school that were like that the teachers always like the first instruction is like read to the read to the end of the test before you start you know and the final question is like just hand this in blank or whatever yeah like I, it could be one of those it could be uh, like a turing test sort of thing <laughs> like yeah. is anyone gonna notice this so i didn't do anything which i which i sort of felt was out of character for me but uh, like if I had seen him in person, I would have, but I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a friend talk about something very similar to this, uh, this week where they said like, uh, during an interview, they ask, um, how explain recursion to me like I was a dog. And I said, you should hire the first person who goes woof to you <laughs> because it's like one of those things that it, it's, I feel like a perfect programmery type question where, you know, 
you're, you're, you're expecting, you know, to go, oh, well, recursion does this, that, or the other thing. But ultimately, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that catches people off guard if you hear it correctly. Because I feel like most people just don't give a crap about, like, uh, you know, when you turn a phrase completely wrong, but, like, the words are homonyms. <laughs> you know? So I was kind of obnoxious in college, related story. And... And before college, like that, that period from saying, I mean, why stop at college? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, well, if you never officially graduate, then, you know, Hey, yeah, just keep it going. Uh, so from, I don't know, maybe age 15 to 21, I was pretty insufferable and people will say like, Oh, come on, you know, how insufferable could you have been? And my answer for years now has been the same, which is that I, uh, with not being funny, I handed in a paper in college about Zen Buddhism in an art history class, longer story why it was in that class. I just handed in a blank piece of paper. And I mean, <laughs> to say that I was smug about that moment would have, I think that's an understatement. I was very proud of this paper. And then I get an A, which like set me back three years. I think my entire oh, life. No. It's true. I think my entire life. We would, can, we can, it, we can draw a line directly back to that. And that, that is, that is why Sean is today. No, you know what? I, I think it took me like, if you're drawing a curve of my life at 28, I finally broke even on the setback that was getting an A on my paper. <laughs> really? Like I was starting to make progress. I got an A on a blank Zen paper. I regressed into an awful person, a more awful person, and then just barely, barely broke even. But uh, like eight, I don't know, nine years later. Was it like a legitimate A? Like, like I mean, like yeah, I got an A on that paper. And, and the the, yeah. the teacher was, or the professor was like, yeah. Like, did you get any notes or anything? Like, did they write A on the paper? Or did they return it to you completely blank? Because I do think that would that would tell you. I don't the... recall if I got like physically got it back or not. Um, I remember the teacher pretty well, and I I I think that the asterisk on the story is that I had I I had done well in this class, so it wasn't like I was some you know jackass that wasn't going to the class or or. Uh, uh, you know, writing yeah. papers or taking the tests. I was a jackass that was doing those things. Um, and like, I, I, I kind of think like, as far as like a, a cocktail party, it's a good story. Like to, to have said that I did that, but it was not a good thing to have done. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Anyhow, I, I say, so, uh, on the, the rest of the, when do you know to ship? I've got some other stuff, but I think we can save it for the next episode. Cause you know what? We do the show every week. <laughs> We, we, we got more more to say, but we're an hour 15 in. I, I say we uh, punt that till next time. Yes. Anything to promote? Uh, if you haven't supported your local Girl Scout yet, do it. Tell them Kyle sent you. Buy a box of Savannah Smiles for $4. <laughs> yeah, lemon-dusted shortbread cookies for yeah, those sorry, of you in you, Iowa. You, yeah. <laughs> I still can't believe that. That made my week. A totally true story. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to connect with me online, I'm barely known. Until and next time. Uh, everywhere, I'm K Daigle. Peace out. See ya. <laughs>